0: Hello, I'm Eve. Welcome to my podcast on Emily Dickinson and the Poetics of Reticence. Reticence. In this podcast, I will argue that reticence is an essential component of poetry, if not the core of a reader's experience of a poem. This emphasis on reticence may seem surprising considering that poetry's medium is language. Poetry is an art of speech, however, at the same time, half-silence or reticence is the heart of poetry. We would not be able to hear the notes from the piano music if there were no spaces between each note. Meaning lives in the silences between sounds. The same is true for poetry. My research focuses on the poetry of Emily Dickinson, who practiced a heightened form of reticence. Dickinson lived in 19th century New England. The poet Brenda Hillman has referred to Dickinson as our first molecular biologist of pain. While Dickinson wrote about a variety of human internal experiences, including joy and ecstasy, there is perhaps no other poet who has plumbed the varieties of human suffering with such skill. Dickinson began one of her poems, After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The first three words of this line, after great pain, announce that the speaker is going to tell us something that happens internally. There is a pause after these words, in the form of a comma, and then the last four words, a formal feeling comes, is followed by one of Dickinson's characteristic dashes. Dickinson's dashes, not grammatically regular, appear in surprising places throughout her poems. We don't even know if they should be called dashes, some call them strokes or strikes. I will argue that Dickinson's dashes replace unspoken emotion. They hide feeling and in doing so invoke feeling in the reader. I will now read the entire poem and when I pause in my reading it will be because one of the dashes appears or there is a line break or a comma, as I hope you will hear These silences are as important as the words in the poem. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious, like tombs. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore, and yesterday, or centuries before? The feet mechanical go round a wooden way of ground or air or aught regardless grown a quartz contentment like a stone this is the hour of lead remembered if outlived as freezing persons recollect the snow first chill, then stupor, then the letting go. It is thought that Dickinson wrote this poem in 1862, a year when she wrote over 300 poems – that's almost a poem a day – a year when soldiers were being killed in the Civil War by the thousand, a year when pain was a common subject in the work of all American poets. The first words of the poem raise the questions, Isn't the after pain a part of the pain? Why does Dickinson avoid talking about the before pain? The reticence around the actual before pain suggests to the reader that the speaker is not emotionally capable of visiting that place of pain again. The absence of such language announces emotional fragility. The third word in the poem, pain, is the only word that seems to offer a window into the emotion that took place before. Therefore, it stands out, pulsing and radiating onto the abstract language, metaphoric images, and formal diction that follow. This solitary emotional word represents the speaker's vulnerability shining quietly in its third position. But this nakedness hides itself as soon as it is shown. It will not appear again in the poem and no other word like it will be seen. As soon as emotional language is introduced in a Dickinson poem, like pain, the emotion within that word is annulled. The feeling becomes distant rather than intimate. This distancing ironically creates an intimacy between poem and reader. The word formal appears and in this context is a self-protective reaction to a deep internal wound. The last lines of the poem abandon the formal diction, but no emotional word such as pain returns. The last stanza is filled with dashes between words. Dickinson's dashes use detachment to create intimacy. The reader is surprised, taken aback by where they're placed in the line, but also curious, pulled in. They create a relationship. Dickinson's biographer, Lyndall Gordon, writes that these dashes push the language apart, create spaces for the reader to fill. The four dashes in the last line of the poem are all inserted in ungrammatically correct places. Through wordless sound, Dickinson compels the reader to take notice, to pause unnaturally, reflecting a fragmented state as well as the speaker's breathlessness. We become aware of the silences, from which language erupts. This emotional and narrative reticence can only function in an interplay between speech and quietness, words and white space. Without both in place, multiple meanings could not be accessed. The vocabulary of silence, its eloquence, is richer than the language that surrounds it. The words in the poem are bound to the speechless dash and to the white space at the end of the page. The reader is confronted with lines that tremble with vulnerability. The dashes, which strike out emotion, are breaths, cries, blinks of the eyes, prompting the reader to take a breath, tugging the reader to participate in the unnamed emotions, all the more profound and fragile because of their absence. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Stuart Brooks for helping me with the technical aspects of this podcast and Polly and Joe and everyone at Techni for giving me the opportunity to record it. I'm Eve Gruben and I hope you enjoyed this podcast.